Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Are you well? What? Yeah, I know. Yeah, but if I... But can I just... I'm aware it's Friday, okay? I'm aware it's Friday. And look, I promise you, soon we will get back to our regular Thursday appointments and I hope you will be there. But for now, and for a few weeks longer, our main aim is to get you a fresh new episode out once a week, whether that's a Thursday or a Friday. Okay? Good. They've all been great so far. I've been so chuffed with the calibre of guests that we've had and the conversations that have sparked other conversations off with you. Um, and this week's no exception. It's episode 135, and we welcome back Mr. Matt Ford. Now, remember at the start of lockdown, how many times did you hear, do you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack on with, with learning Spanish or, or Japanese, or I'm going to learn that new skill. I'm going to write a book. Well, Matt Ford did that. No, he didn't learn a new language. He wrote a book. So I was interested in talking to him about that. It's called Politically Homeless. And I wanted to, you know, talk about the parallels between writing stand-up shows or writing an article in a paper to writing a book and the pitfalls and the distractions and also why he's not using his exercise bike that he bought at the moment for his flat. All these questions will be answered and a lot more. And also we get to have a little talk towards the end about his involvement in the reboot or the return of Spitting Image, which is going to be on BritBox every Saturday night. Um, yeah, it's a great conversation. And look, if I'm really honest, I like Matt's company and he's a friend and I kind of miss speaking to him. So I thought, what better way? We can kill two birds with one stone and do a podcast episode. Now, I know that a lot of you will be missing certain people. And I've got a little friend, right? She's called Alice. And sometimes she sends me videos, sometimes photos. And what she's been doing of late is uh, she loves uh, the art scene. She loves culture. She loves music. She loves film. She's been sending me some film reviews. And I thought I'd share one with you because it's put a big smile on my face and it cheered me up. So, look, if everything's good, great. Listen to this. It'll only make things better. If it's not a particularly great morning for you, or whenever you're listening to this, have a listen to my friend Alice as she gives you a very concise review of the latest film that she's watched, and it is The Greatest Showman. Thank you, Alice. (laughs) 
Hi, my name's Alice and today we're going to be talking about films and the first film is going to be The Greatest Showman. So, um, in The Greatest Showman there are lots of films. My favourite character in it is the trapeze lady because she's got pink hair which is a wig um, but she does lots of trapeze and there's a, like, a ringmaster who kind of loves her and my favourite song is the second one in the film and that one is quite good. The first one's my favourite too, you know, where they're like saying, oh, this is a great show and then the second one, yeah, those are my two favourites and then... How about we rewrite the stars? That's my third favourite and it's a really good film. I hope you watch it. And there we go. So if you haven't seen The Greatest Showman, then I think that is a glowing endorsement and a great film review from my friend Alice. Now, on to this week's episode. If you haven't listened to Matt's first appearance on the podcast... Go back and listen to that and get to know all about Matt's past because it'll piece together and it'll make more sense because this is quite a nice little companion piece to what we spoke about in his first episode. So, yeah, let's get down to it. This is episode 135 with the very funny Mr. Matt Ford. Enjoy and I shall see you at the end. How are you, mate? So <laughs> nice good, to thanks. welcome you back. Oh, it's a pleasure. It was a big deal for me coming on here before, and I had such a lovely reaction. I think you can you can judge a podcast's listeners and its audience by the reaction a guest gets, and I had so many lovely messages from your audience. So uh, thank you, and, and to those of you that are listening, thank well, you. It was, we, have uh, a ve- we have a very nice a audience. warm glow after doing it. Because we have very nice guests, so yeah, it's it all goes hand in hand. Now, before we get on to... The main topic, which is is you, but we've kind of done you, but we're kind of doing we're kind of doing different, different variants. Um, I wanna. I was thinking about you the other day. Oh yeah. Um, because I'm trying to limit my news input, and I yeah. know that you're a news and political junkie. Yeah. Um, that someone said something about Christmas, about a very bumpy Christmas, and Christmas isn't going to be normal, and Christmas might be cancelled. And yeah. for somebody who I know absolutely adores Christmas yeah, yeah. and starts Christmas on the first of December, absolutely right, the tree, the lot, everything. But you everything. are, you go all out. Everything comes out first of December, doesn't it? Everything first of December. I always get a chocolate advent calendar, but like literally everything is up on the first of December. I met some I met myself a Christmas playlist that I start listening to from the first of December. I start watching Christmas films from the first of December. Christmas really is December, isn't it? And yeah. after New Year's Day I kind of start feeling sad about having the tree up. So it's one month of the year and I just like hammer it from day one. <laughs> And I just like pedal hard. I just want to get as much of it in because when it's when I have to take the stuff down, I'm like, I always feel like oh, it's happened so quickly, and I, I didn't really feel like I've got enough out of it. So I just like I cram from the first of December to the first of January. Really, it's on. 
So how do you feel about this year? Are you slightly worried or are you just going to go for it as normal? I'll still go it... for it, yeah. I mean, there'll be stuff that we can't do. You know, going to the pub with mates probably isn't going to happen. I'm not sure if I'll get back up to Nottingham to see my family. I'm not sure. I, you know, we usually go to Scotland for a few days. That probably won't happen. So, uh, you know, I'll be restricted in terms of movement like everyone will. But in my flat, I'm going to I'm gonna go for it. I can't it's still, wait. It's still Christmas in the Matt Ford household. You know what? I think, it'd be, I think this would be one of the best Christmases people have. Like, it, you know, this year's been so hard and then it's getting cold and dark now. Mm. And, you know, you need a reason to cheer yourself up at a time like this. And, like, I think it's going to be great. I just think wherever we all are, everyone's going to kind of have to... We're also having Christmas together as a planet this year. I don't think... People have ever really thought of it as big as that before, but this year, like everyone's going to be having to just do it in their own way. Aware that the reason why we can't do it normally is because we're all in this situation, um, and I think in a weird way, there's a kind of there's something quite sort of cute about that. You know, I think there's something really, you know, I would obviously rather see my family at Christmas, but I can't. The sort of knowledge that we're all having to suffer this together is kind of unifying. So it's official, Christmas. Isn't cancelled. Christmas isn't cancelled, no. And it's what's gonna, more Christmas than that? Having a soppy kind of, you know, theme to it. Basically, this is the best sort of Christmas romantic comedy we're ever going to have. We should, well, and I would cast Craig Parkinson, of course. You know it. Hey, as look. the female lead. Hey, that's, it's all panto, I've been trying baby, to do. Or, oh, I've got a very big panto oh. story to tell you, Matthew Ford. <laughs> yeah. This is not for this podcast. <laughs> um, now... Not that this is about lockdown, uh, because try not to talk about it too yeah. much. But you remember at the start of lockdown, and everybody was going, "Okay, well now's the chance. I'm going to learn Spanish. I'm going to get to grips <laughs> with my Japanese. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, learn this. I'm going to learn that. I'm going to write this book." Everybody said it. You actually did it. You wrote a book. I wrote a book. I, I didn't learn Spanish. So I let you down on that count. Yes, you did. But I've I've written a book and I've got it here in my hand, which tell feels me, very surreal. Tell look, show, put it me up to the camera so I can see it. Okay. It's Matt Ford, politically homeless. How a love of politics turned into a nightmare, then got worse. With a very flattering quote from Tony Blair and a beautiful photo of your good self. Yeah, it's not a very good photo of me. It's basically an old. Well, you approved shop. it. You are? You approved it. I did, but we couldn't do a photo shoot because of COVID, so I had to pick an old photo, and that was the one that kind of made most sense, one of me looking slightly forlorn on the front. I think it's a good photo. I've seen that one before. Yeah, but I think I've lost weight since then. You know what it's like. Ah, uh, is this because of the exercise bike? Yeah, because of the exercise bike. Oh, yeah, are exactly. We, are, we, are we still turning over the exercise bike, or is it turned into a clothes horse? Well, I'm, I haven't used it for a fortnight because... <laughs> okay, I wasn't going to tell anyone right, this. There we go. But the because is important... <laughs> And before I tell you the because, just bear in mind that I'm 37, and this yes. is the healthiest I've probably been for about 10 years. Probably. I've got gout. Right. Yeah. I got it a few weeks ago, and my <laughs> right foot was agony. It got misdiagnosed <laughs> as like a sort of metatarsal thing. So it was just in there, incubating and getting worse. <laughs> I was sleeping, mate. Ten nights, I like, with my foot in the air on cushions. It still hasn't fully gone. I'm popping pills to get rid of it. But basically, I haven't been able to exercise. For the last okay. fortnight, because it just I, I wasn't able to walk until the other day. But up until two weeks ago, were you uh, were you on the mileage? Yeah, still hammering it. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Really you look very well. I must admit, oh, you look good. You. I mean, this isn't at the best angle. You know, if I'd have put this laptop on books and angled the shot down, I mean, you'd have 
I'd look as thin as you. Well, it's not that. Uh, it's not that type of podcast. It's not a video podcast. I don't look like that. Stop doing an impression. <laughs> stay, stay. Just save your impressions for spitting okay. image, which we'll get onto later. Um, I hope. Yeah. Now, would this book be in your hands if it wasn't for lockdown? That's a very probably not probably not right at this moment. Is right. The, is the is the honest answer. Um, I think I probably would have written a book eventually and it would probably be something along these lines. The theme of it is kind of consistent with the theme of stuff that I've put out there in my podcast and in my comedy shows, which is I love politics, but the last few years have been shit. (laughs) And, uh, you know, making light of it. Um, But obviously lockdown was the kind of impetus to kind of get it done. So I think, you know, I think without lockdown, it's the sort of thing I'd have just kind of put off. So who knows? And who knows if I'd have ever got round to it? You know, life takes you in different directions, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So maybe not is the honest answer. Because I was going to say, you know, writing, you know, an Edinburgh show, a touring show, or writing a piece in the standard to writing a book, very, very different. It's a completely different discipline. And that's why it's so interesting from a creative point of view is I write and perform stand-up comedy, which is mm. about as disposable as the arts gets. You say it and it's out your mouth and it's gone. And with stand-up, you have to be turning over the material because your audience doesn't want to hear you tell the same joke twice. You know, you, if you're doing a new tour, it's got to be all brand new. And I, as you know, do Edinburgh every year and that's mm. a brand new hour. I'm used to kind of turning over stuff that's disposable. This is on that page forever. And that is a very different pressure. And I kind of felt that a bit. You know, you, the way you craft your language when you're writing a book compared to how you write it for stand-up is really different. And even though the point behind it's the same and, and it's still my sense of humour, you know, you don't write in the same voice that you would perform stand-up in. You know, it kind of, not that it's formal because I, I worked really hard for it to sound natural and sound like me, but in a weird way, actually, writing stuff down and really going back over it really makes you realise what you actually think. And I know that right. sounds kind of weird, but like when you really have to commit it to the page forever, you're far more careful than if you're mm. just chatting in the pub. So it was really good just for kind of sharpening my, uh, my mind, really. So was it a case of finding not necessarily a new voice, but certainly just sort of changing tact a little bit? Yeah, because if you write it like a stand-up routine, it would be kind of, it would be more, it would it'd sort of be, I think it would kind of sort of cheapen it in a way. You know, stand-up is structured in a way which is set up punchline effectively. There, there are variations on that, but you... You impart information and then you have a funny twist. And, you know, you can do that as a story or, you know, I'll do it. In, obviously, I'm an impressionist, which absolutely does not work on the page. <laughs> so, I mean, I say, close your eyes and this really sounds like Donald Trump. You know, so that's one string that I couldn't put in there. Although I get a couple in on the audio book. I was going to um, say. But yes, you, you know, you have to you have to keep your personality. So, it's, yeah. you know, you're not, it's not like you're writing. You can't pretend to be Shakespeare or Dickens all of a sudden. Um but I suppose that it's, it's, it, the structure's different. And that, that then changes the kind of the way you write, just very subtly. So um, I've read it back. You know, there's enough... There's a couple of mucky jokes in there. So it's, no, it's, it's really? Defi- it's definitely me. Well, I think someone said that the word wanking was used a fair bit, <laughs> which I didn't realise. <laughs> but it turns out, you know, even in a book about politics, I will get a couple of wanking gags <laughs> That's piqued your interest, anyway. Well, look, you'd have to be <laughs> if you're talking about politics this day and age. My God. 
So what were the what were the what struggles did you find? Because this is, you know, it's it's a new skill to write this book. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what the difference is. If I'm working up a new set or a new show for Edinburgh, mm. say, you sort of go on stage with a couple of ideas and then you can kind of talk them out and then you'd be quite waffly. Obviously, with a book, you can't just write that blah, 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 improvise here. Yeah. Like, you have to literally, actually fill the space with words. So it was like having, in a really good way, but it was like having homework. You know, I was having to write a couple of thousand words a day. And were you and, quite disciplined with that, Matt? Yeah, I was, yeah. I mean, there were, there were days when I'd get less down. I mean, you, you really, I mean, it, make, it gives me a real admiration for, like, professional authors, you know, people who is, it's their sole thing or God knows what it'd be like writing a novel, but you have to get something down. Whereas with stand-up, you can go, oh, I'll think about it on the train there. Now, obviously, you can't just do that. You have to be thinking it, but you can kind of get on stage and feel things out sometimes with with. With a book, it has to, you know, you have to get a certain amount of words down. Or, you know, there were some days where I'd maybe get 500 words down. Or, and this was really painful, you'd write maybe turn off 3,000 words. I think, actually, that's, that's rubbish. Or it's off the point and you have to delete it. You're like, oh, oh. God. And then, you know, I'd try and, I'd, it was almost like being on a diet in the sense that, or having an exercise regime, I knew how many words I had to hit each day to hit the deadline. So then if I had a day like that, I'd be like, oh, God, I've got, now got to write, instead of 2,000 words tomorrow, 2,300, you know, and you just sort of feel like it's not having a debt that's going up. But also, you don't want to treat it just like a thing that needs getting off your desk. It needs to be, you know, so the pressure of having to hit a workout and make the words really good. Yeah. And funny, you know, and, in, you know, this is this book that effectively does two things. You know, it's an inside story about politics and a certain amount of political analysis about the last five to ten years. But I'm a comedian and I want to write a funny book. So it was, it was doing both of those things and, and not having too much of one at the expense of the other. So hopefully and, I've done it. And is it from your perspective? Is it, is it, were, you, were you trawling back through your stories when you were working for the Labour Party? Is that yeah. the kind of stories that you were digging deep for? Yeah, so it's a, it's a, I mean, it was really fun, actually, like, remember it, because my political career was fairly brief and crap, and I was, <laughs> I was like, I did not have a successful career in politics, you know what I mean? Like, it was basically just a string of disasters. So it's a really good thing for a book, because it's just a string of stories of, like, really embarrassing mistakes that I made. And, well, just and, like most politicians. Well, exactly, days. yeah. So, if they're being honest. Um, and then... You know, for me, I was so involved in it. And and also, it's a kind of story about teenage obsession, you know, and I think people can identify with that, whether it's politics, whether it's music or comedy or art or whatever it is you get into. When you really get into something at a young age, you're so obsessed with it. And mm. I fell in love with it, and I fell in deep and I ended up working in it. And then I really began to... The last few years have been really difficult, and I kind of... Even though I'm still obsessed, I didn't really like it that much. And I think a few people feel like that, not necessarily that they had my experience of getting into it so early, but I think a lot of people, certainly a lot of people that I talk to, the last four or five years, I found it really tricky. It's not been pleasant to kind of be observing politics or be around it. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it kind of chimes with a few more people out there. And I thought Politically Homeless was a kind of apt title. Yeah, very much so. And Matt, when you're previewing a stand-up show, yeah, you generally go to smaller venues don't you yeah and 
you know, let's say you're at the Hen and Chickens in London or something like yeah. that, and you're not sure w- what's going to land, and then you, but you can take it from the audience, can't you? And then you right, that's going in the bin. That's yes. good. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you so, have a pad and pen on stage, and you cross stuff out and whatnot. So was having an editor a bit like your preview audience? So my editor was Katie Fellain, who's wonderful, and she. I never knew what an editor did. So mm. at the start. I was like, what, how does this work? He said, well, either you can send it me kind of chapter by chapter or you can just send me the whole thing at the end. And I chose, that I think, the wisest decision, which was chapter by chapter, so I could just send it off so that at least she's getting stuff from me. And then based on her feedback in chapter one, that can then inform how I, you know. Yeah, but and really, you're putting the tone together as well. Uh, like a jigsaw and it's feedback from her yeah exactly and i wanted some early feedback on whether i was on the right track or not my main fear actually was stuff like i didn't want to like repeat phrases or you know sometimes if you read a badly written book and there's too many it's really hard to not use cliched sort of turns of phrase but if there's too many or if it's always structured in the same way you go uh, it feels a bit so i hope i've avoided that so it was more they just kind of keep you on track and they just They'll remind you of things. They go, oh, you mentioned this in chapter three. And you go, ah, I did, actually. And they just find a way to link things or maybe if you contradicted yourself or... It's, it's like having a teacher mark your homework, really. They're so just, she, uh, she was invaluable. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, anyone out there who's written a book, and I realise that's a relatively small amount of people, but people who listen to this show might have gone through it or know people who work in it. Mm. For me, I was just finding this all out for the first time. Yeah, I mean, a, a really good editor is like... It's like having a really good director... Or a really good, I, I don't know, you know, I'm trying to think of sort of the equivalent in acting and comedy. But like, Well, it's, it's about, it's, you know, wh- whether it's a director in comedy or a director in acting, it all boils down to trust on, on both sides, I think. Yeah, well, that's it. That was the other thing was, I was really worried I was going to disagree with a lot of what she said and be like, oh, God, what if I don't agree with my, you know, how does this work? Like, are we going to have to go through counselling? Is it like... <laughs> Well, I'm like, all the so luckily that was absolutely not a problem and you realise that these people probably edit a lot of books a year and they know what they're doing. Yeah. So that was kind of reassuring. Was there certain things that you were advised not to put in the book? No, I was kind of... That was all kind of left to me, really. There were times where there were certain... I'm just wondering how honest you can be about certain things. Well, yeah, there were... Def- oh, OK, so there were, there were like notes from lawyers that where I had to change stuff. Um, there was one bit, yeah. So I had to change bits from lawyers, and then there were way, there were other bits where uh, she'd kind of check with me. Actually, you know, one of the things she early questions she was like, "Oh, will your mum be okay being it?" I talk about my mum a bit in a very nice way, yeah. But you know, you're still basically bringing someone else into your story, and it's true. And that would just made me realise actually, you know, you do have to be really careful, even if you're talking about someone in a complimentary way. So there's a couple of ex colleagues that I mentioned in the book that I checked with. There's a couple of stories. So one of the stories is, um, I can't believe, I mean, this would have, if this would have been discovered, we'd have been fired. Me and uh, a former colleague of mine, Gregor, when we were working for Labour, went undercover at the Tory party conference, right? <laughs> but basically got shit-faced, got really overconfident, blagged our way in to David Cameron's leader's reception. <laughs> Met him. <laughs> Got photos with him, right? It was like we just went too far. We were just like giddy. I mean, I must have been what was this? Two thousand and five. So I'd have been like twenty four or something. I was just like this. I was living my best life. We couldn't believe how we'd got in. Anyway, we're at this reception. We're battered. 
and we're just we're in the lion's den. We're just enjoying it. And then he goes, I think that's Christopher Hitchens. I look over at this bloke, I was like, I don't think it is, mate, but we were wasted. It could have been. Well, let's go and chat over. Anyway, so we go over to him. We're undercover. We're Labour staff, undercover drunk in like, oh, man, in like the dog pit. I was like, if we, they smell it on us, man, it'd be like snatch. We'll be fed to the bricked up pigs, right? And um, (laughs) this guy, I said, excuse me, you're Christopher Hitchens. And he turned his lanyard around. He said, no, I'm Benedict Brogan from the Daily Mail. Oh. And I went, immediately then, like, the, the danger was like, eh, eh, so I went, oh, right, sorry. And then, and then he's with this woman, and he goes, oh, don't talk to her. She's a mole. And I was like, oh, flip. Like, they know. They know that we're undercover. They're going to, they've, like, we have been, they've probably been watching us all night. Like, we, th- we thought the joke was in. on them. The joke is on us. Oh. So I'm, I'm like, oh. <laughs> I think I said something like, because we... Like, we'd create this whole backstory for ourselves. We'd, I'd even created false Tory conference packs for us to, like, hold. I printed off loads of stuff off the Tory party website. You know, just the stuff that delegates just hang around. Yeah. You know, put our fake names on it. My fake name, by the way, I just was my dad's name and my granddad's surname, which was John Gleeson, which is really boring. My mate went for Sam Bond, which was just... I was like, why didn't I think of that? Anyway, so I was like, oh, John Gleeson and Sam Bond. I put on a bit of a Tory accent all this. Anyway, she, he goes, she's a mole. And I go, oh. And I sort of like... Sober up. Pants, and then go, oh, bloody hell. Um, what, what do you mean? She went, yeah, I'm a, I've gone undercover at Labour head office and I'm feeding stuff back to the Tories and no one's found out yet. I said, bloody hell, old girl. You've got some bloody gumption. And like, was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Anyway, we're like, oh, we've got to go chat to our mate over there. And we're like... We think, the irony is, we've gone undercover and actually found a mole, right? We get into the office the following day, we're like, we think someone's gone undercover at head office. This was during the local election campaign or something. Anyway, they, they find her and they're like, oh my God, you're right. They said all this stuff was leaking out of head office. Through her? She, yeah. She's oh just going to escort off the premises. Like, oh. So we were just like... Heroes of the day. We were the heroes. <laughs> we were just... It was off the charts. And like the photos of us with George Osborne <laughs> and Cameron like went round like the Labour Party email server. People were like, we can't believe you went there, got battered. And then in like this sort of final, you know, amazing moment, you, you know, the story's effectively saved because otherwise it's kind of reckless. You find someone who's undercover. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible. And we could, the problem was the following day, like, I couldn't remember a name. So it's like, oh, it's just a woman. <laughs> she had brown hair, I don't know. Just, I know what she so, looks like, baby. like a woman, you know, just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, that was, so the full story of that is in the book and it, there's a kind of lot of, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of kind of drunken nonsense as well as the politics. Were there moments where you stalled and you you found it difficult to continue. Not not that you would ever stop, but I mean, when you first start working in politics and you've got a bit of responsibility, particularly if you're working directly for the Labour Party, and, and I was working for them at the time, so oh Tony sorry, Blair's... Matt, sorry, that's my fault. I meant about writing the book. Oh, sorry. Um, I didn't stall. There were times where I felt. So at the start, I kind of sketched out what I thought the kind of broad themes were. I thought there was kind of three sections to it, which was. Right. Me falling in love with politics, mm. and that kind of funny, you know, being eight and wanting to, you know, being excited with it. Then working in it, and a load of war stories and lessons I learned, and loads of stuff coming off that. And then the kind of the third act, which is 
how I sort of effectively started to fall out of love with it and Brexit and all that sort of thing. Um, so it was structured. So that it was, was structured, right. yes. I had those three things, and then, I, and then I broke those three things down into sort of different, what I thought the chapters were going to be. Um, and broadly, the book is kind of how I thought it was going to be sketched out. But there were definitely like a couple of chapters where I thought, oh, that's just one sentence, that. That's not, I can't write two. That's not a <laughs> Shit. So I think there was one entire chapter that didn't make it that um, Kate and my editor was just like, or it was, like, it, was a, it was a big chunk of a chapter that was just like, yeah, we don't need that. I was like, hmm, don't need to fucking read that. <laughs> it's like, well, that's that, you know. And I agreed. Yeah. It felt kind of the danger as well is you don't want to be telling, you know, you can tell funny stories obviously earn their place because it's, you know, who doesn't like reading a funny story, particularly if it's set in politics. Yeah. But if they're all kind of on a similar theme, it can't just be, oh, and another time I got drunk at Downing Street, you know, you kind of have to pick the ones you're going to tell, I think. And that's true of any, you know, that's just the editing process that you have to get used to. And it's the same with stand up is, you get wedded to every joke and you can't let one go. And you're like, well, I've got too much, so which one do you cut? And it's the same when you're writing a play or a screenplay or whatever, a poem, I'm sure. Um, it's just really good to let stuff go. And are you quite, are you quite ruthless in that department about letting things go? And, I think stand-up and, and, teaches you to do that, yeah. Right. I think, in a way, the one good discipline I had from stand-up coming to this was I'm used to having to cut stuff. Stuff that I really like has to get cut sometimes and, you know... That is a, that's an important part of the process. And I suppose, you know, I'm more or less thinking about other stand-up comedians now. When they cut certain things from from their set, there's a, a good chance it could come back around in another show. But because of the very nature and current issues of what you structure your shows around that would be very hard for them to come back around, wouldn't it? Yeah, because I do topical stuff, they're basically gone forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really... Although, sometimes if you've, if you've hit upon the nub of an idea, you can kind of... You know, let's say it was a joke about Boris Johnson and then Boris Johnson is no longer Prime Minister. It might kind of work about something. If there was a nugget in there that you might be able to use it as Trump or something, you know, the, or you've hit upon a funny idea that you can kind of just leave on the shelf and think... I can't use that now in this mm. context, but for something else, I can fit that logic to it. So it's almost like it's almost like having a garage of sort of car parts. You can only make one car at a time, but you know the, you've got other bits knocking around that you can. At some point, equally, a lot of it just goes to rust. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you keep notes, like actual physical notes? I do more now, so I keep far more on my laptop. Um, and I keep notes, so um, I write a lot of stuff down. So I've, I've sort of, you know what? Actually, I used to have these crummy notepads. I just buy like a jotter from the supermarket, like a refill mm. pad. Yeah. And then I was always tearing pages out. And then I was like a mad professor. I just have bags full of just odds and ends. I was like, I can't, you know what? If I stop performing this show for a month, and obviously COVID happened, I was like, I, I, if I needed to perform the tour show that I was doing before COVID happened. I'd sort of struggle to lay my hands on the actual thing. Do you know what I mean? I'd have to rely so much on memory. I was like, that is insane. Yeah. So I buy, uh, and you know what? I actually thought, and they're pricey, but the black and reds, you know, because it's a nice book. I'm like, I'm going to look after that. Yeah. There's something psychological about it being on nice paper and stuff. And um, also, that's a good size. That's not yeah, it's a good size. Missing. A4, I've, I've got a load of them. And actually, it's big, this is one of the best things I've ever invested in. A nice blue pen 
and a proper pad, the hardback pad that you can kind of, it'll take a few knocks on the road and stuff and yeah. you can spill tea on it. Uh, but there's something about it being really nice. You go, right, this is, this is a book for good ideas. Do you know what I mean? There's something psychological about it. It makes you want to write. Um, so yes, I do now after having years just of odds and ends, which was, I can't believe I've survived that long. Especially on post-it notes. I'm like, what am I doing? God. Speaking of being on the road, Matt, are you, how are you finding it now? Cause it's it, been quite a long time. It feels bizarre. It's the longest I've not done stand-up for yeah, since well, I started. I and I haven't, you know, I wrote the book. I'm now working on Spitting Image, so I'm writing stuff, but I haven't like written a stand-up routine since like March. And that's just so weird. I'm like, what? Not it even making like... any notes. And he's just sort of jotting I've jotted ideas down a few down. ideas. Yeah, I've jotted down a few ideas just for like routines. Mm. So that yeah, but I haven't written. I haven't sat down and written a stand-up routine or like thought. Right, what would I do as you know a stand-up routine about this since about March? And that's just surreal. You go, oh, God. I'm going to have to relearn it. I hope I can still do it. But do, how does it make you feel within yourself, the way that it's going? Because you know I know, I know, I was listening to uh, John Bishop a few days ago, and he was talking about a lot of comedians doing stuff over Zoom. And he went, that's not for me. I just, I'm not going to be doing that. And I know that you... Uh, you haven't been doing that either. Well, I've done a few. I've done a few online gigs. Um, but not... You haven't been doing the week in, week out. Oh, no. At no. the, you know, at the, the the virtual pub, like a lot of, you know, a fair few of stand-ups have been doing. And he said that, that that just wasn't for him at all. And he did one with Jason Manford and just found it very odd because, it, of course, you are. Yeah, it's surreal because it's not... You sat in your flat at your desk and the audience are on a laptop like it's so weird it's not the way stand-up should exist but obviously it's because of covid so that's why we're doing it i mean i kind of get i had a bit of a cheat with it where i would do it as either boris or trump and i would do it as like a fake press conference so whoever was hosting the gig i'd just send them questions in advance and they go oh we've got the president here and they'd ask me five questions that i pre-scripted answers to and i would just you know deliver it down the camera and it um that made it a lot easier. Mm. I mean, doing normal stand-up to a laptop, I, the thought of it makes my skin crawl. I don't know how... And some people have really mastered it and have done really well at it. Um, it almost gives me a panic attack, the thought of having to sit and go, so, have you seen that thing? You're like, what? It just... I, oh, God. It's like the thing actors have where you can just like turn it on. I've got so much admiration for that because I'm like... Uh, the anxiety makes me feel, you know, in an audition when you've got to like be really emotional or something, you're like, oh, I can't. Uh, there's people here. <laughs> Which is so strange, isn't it? Because you would have thought that, certainly from an outsider's perspective uh, of a stand-up, going out in front of even 50 people would be so exposing, more yeah. so than just getting up in front of your flat and, you know, turning your laptop on. Yeah, but you can hear the laughter, can't you, in a venue and stuff like that. Well, you know, I'm they... sure, yeah. And that's obviously a comforting wave that's carrying you through. I understand it. I get it. And also, as a stand-up, I like to be stood up and walking around and, like, you know, oh, you never, never got stop, you never stop moving around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got to be there, man. You sort of, you play to different parts, you kind of... And there's something about the focus of a venue, and it's the same for live actors, or 
buns. It's like you're on stage and you are almost certainly literally elevated. You are lit and amplified. Every seat in that venue is directly pointed at you and you're the point of the night. And you don't really get that on a laptop. You know, you don't get the same kind of, you know, performer needs a level of status because authority is required to hold an audience. And if you lose that, it's a really delicate balance and you can lose it quickly, you know. I think if you're on a laptop, you start off with zero authority. And I think that's really difficult. You're like, oh, we're on this Zoom call together and this guy's going to be a bit funnier than us. I don't think it has the same impact. Or balance. There's, there's, there's zero balance to it at all. I mean, you know, we were talking before about uh, the disposable nature of a stand-up show. And it got me thinking about that's ex- that is exposing, I think. Oh, yeah. But then you were talking about the printed word that is there. Mm-hmm. It is not fish and shit paper. That is not going away. Mm-hmm. What You know, looking at it now, now the book is out there and people have got it in their hands and they're reading it or they're listening to the audio book. What do you find more exposing? Oh, the audio book. Out of those two? No, out of those three. The fact that you've got an audio book out, you've got an actual physical book out that you've... Yeah penned and the the disposable nature of a stand-up show oh that's a really good question i mean i think stand-up's what i do so i'm just i've kind of made my peace with what it is Mm. and the sort of pros and cons of it because the highs in stand-up are exceptional you know if you're smashing a gig i don't think there is a better feeling on earth like it's got to be up there with scoring a goal or something like that like it is It's a feeling so few people will ever have, and it is magic. And it's magic every time, and it never wears off. The feeling, I mean, it's just magnificent. You feel like you're flying. Um, Well, I remember the last last time... the book, it's different. Well, of course, yeah, but it's there, isn't it? It's there, and you you know we're talking about... So you're doing a, a Zoom gig. There's no feedback. Yeah. There is feedback from the book, but it's not coming directly to you. Then also you've got a different audience now because you've got book reviewers giving you feedback that, again, albeit is fish and shit paper, it's there. Yes. So are we going to read the reviews, Fordy? I probably will, yeah. I always read my stand-up reviews, and I think in a weird way, I think as long as you've got a fairly balanced view of the thing you've made... I think it's okay to read the reviews. I think if you're, if you feel vulnerable or something, it's probably not the time to read them. But if you're, if you're kind of solid enough to think, you know what, I know what it is, and I know what the, the good and the bad is, and you, you have a sort of good balanced view of it, if you have a fair assessment, I think reading reviews is probably quite positive. I mean, obviously, if they're all terrible, then don't read just a, <laughs> you know, don't read a, a lever arch file full of people <laughs> telling you you're shit or thick or can't write or whatever. But, you know, if they, if they take, you have to take them off through the smooth, and I think that's Absolutely. true anyways. That yeah. If you're going to read, we all love to read a great review. Like it, It's a, it's an immensely validating feeling to know that someone has really got what you've tried to do and liked it and they're telling other people on your behalf you're like wow thank you so much in a way if you're going to enjoy that you have to be able to take because it's subjective someone saying it's not for me or whatever and it doesn't mean you have to agree with every criticism or indeed every bit of praise but i just think for your own emotional balance yeah and also if you if you take on the good you have to at least embrace the bad as well or certain you know 
somebody else's perspective. And this ties in, uh, and I've said this before on the podcast, uh, a very good friend of mine who's an incredible wordsmith and mind and a brilliant theatre director came to see a play that I was in years ago. Um, and we were talking afterwards and he said something and I went, oh, no, of course I haven't read the reviews. And he said, well, why would you? He said, they're not for you. Oh, that's a really and I just point. thought, that's, and it always stood with me because certainly, and I think this links in with stand-up as well, especially someone like you whose shows are forever changing because of the very nature of the material that you're, you're getting all the time that never yeah. stops. With theatre, you, you can change all the time. So somebody's good review could absolutely throw you off piste, equally someone's bad review. But whether it's uh, a piece of cinema or a piece of television that's completed, you can't change that. You can't change it. It's, it's, it's done. It's out there. Yes, so, so, so there's true. zero control. So I was <sighs> try, trying to link in a television and film review to a book review. You can't, you can't go back to your editor and go, yeah, so-and-so from The Guardian said this, and I think they're right. We should actually take <laughs> this out. That is so true. I guess. I mean, I don't know where I was going with that. It's more just no, a, it's a, it was really more a thought. It's a really good point. You know what? In a weird way, because I never set out to be an author, I think. Not. I obviously hope it's reviewed well. I think I could take. I don't think it would hurt me as much if someone didn't like it than if it was my stand up. Because I'm like, well, it's the first one I've done. Yeah. I never thought I was going to be an author. So it's a kind of bonus. I took it very seriously and I worked my nuts off to make it as good as it could possibly yeah. be. I think it's good. But if someone doesn't like it, I'm like, I can live with that, I think. As long as it's not nasty. You know, if they're rude, but then that reflects on them, doesn't it? But if it's not for them... I mean, I read books I don't like sometimes. Like, that's of life. Course. Exactly. Yeah, if a review becomes uh, personal and nasty, then that is, you know, that says more about a review than it does... Anywhere else, and I'm not just talking about um, a book reviewer, you know, reviewers. Oh, that goes stop. for anything. Well, you know, we. I read restaurant reviews more than anything, and because <laughs> I love food and I love restaurants, yeah. um, and sometimes, especially in the current climate and the state we're in, maybe just you know, don't. Be that honest right now, because <laughs> yeah, be nice. <laughs> just be a, maybe a little bit nicer, because everybody's really feeling the pinch, and it's tough. Yeah. So if you're a reviewer listening to this, take note. <laughs> just to just to come to to wrap up, talk about the book before I want to move on to something else, mate. Um, overall, looking back on it, was it an enjoyable experience? Because I know it was hard work, and I, I really, I do know you worked your ass off. Because the amount of times that we've tried to talk, and even when we were trying to set up the first podcast, and I know that you were shielding because of the asthma. Do you think? Yeah, it was worth my time, and I really enjoyed it, and I got something from it. Oh yeah, and there's parts of it that I obviously I've had to re- write it then sort of read it in bits back over for, for editing and then 
try and read the whole thing, and then obviously I had to read the whole thing out loud for the audio book. Um, and there were bits in it that I just thought, oh, that's really funny. And I think if you've, you know, I've read it over four or five times by the time it was printed. Uh, so there were bits of it where I thought, oh, that's really good. I just thought, I can't wait for people to get to that bit. You know, in the same way as I would with the stand-up routine when, when you structured it in a way where you think, oh, there's a really good bit coming. I can't wait to that. I would sort of, sort of rush to get there. You know, I think, I can't wait for that bit. They're going to love that bit. And it's the yeah. same with the book, I think. I can't wait for people to get to that bit and I hope they really like it, you know. So th- that, that thrill of creating something that you want other people to like, I think probably applies to all mediums and I really did love doing it. And who was the first... Now, apart from your editor, who was the first person that you gave a copy to to read? The first people I sent it to were Emily Dean and John Richardson. Is that because they'd, they were first-time authors or they'd gone through something that you'd been through as well? Yes, so they're, they're good friends. They've both written... I mean, you nailed it. They've, they've both written one book um, so far, um, having not been book writers initially. So I thought mm. that was quite an interesting thing. And I knew they'd give me really honest, solid feedback. And they both did. Were you nervous of the, of the reaction, of throwing it out there? Oh, no, 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 God. I really, I'm someone who loves brutal feedback. I'm like, give it to me straight. Tell me what to cut. Tell me what doesn't work. You know, I, I think there's just no point pussyfooting around. I, I, you know, and I think that's from politics is you sort all your shit out first. So that the thing you put in front of people is as good as it could possibly be. So, you know, you, if you're preparing a politician for a briefing or whatever, you ask them the most difficult questions. You grill them behind the scenes. And then when they have to face parliament or a select committee or the electorate, they're ready for the harshest possible questions. And I think it's the same with, certainly for me, putting anything out there. You know, I would, I would be annoyed with a friend if they'd said, actually, I wanted to say, but I didn't. Yeah. I'd be like, what? Well, why didn't you? Yeah, yeah exactly. So I was just like, be brutal, be as brutal as you possibly can be. Not for the sake of it. No. But just give me the strongest feedback. Tell me if something's not good enough or if it doesn't work, why not? You know, just really, just do, do a job on it for me. And they both did. They're, but also, if you're, if, you're, if you're sending it out to people that you trust for feedback, then you would expect that brutal honesty, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's why you choose those people. Exactly. You, know, you don't want to be You want, Although, you know, I understand that other people are different, but I'm just like, help me sort the problems out so that I'm not having this, you know, the last thing you want is for it to be printed or depending on the medium, you know, whatever you're doing. And then th- there's problems to still exist where you're like, oh man, if you knew, why didn't you say? So they were both very, very good. And very polite. They weren't as brutal as I'd... You know, they, they worded all their feedback very politely. <laughs> <laughs> now, moving on to getting involved with, do we call it a reboot of Spitting Image? What, how are we phrasing this? Oh, I guess it's a comeback. A comeback. Because it's the same, it's still Roger Law behind it. Mm. So it's the same kind of team, the DNA of it is still there. Yeah. So how did you get involved with this? About a year ago... My agent said, I think they want to bring back Spitting Image. Right. Would you voice Trump on a... I mean, not would you, as if I was going to say no. no I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not going to get involved in Spitting Image. <laughs> he said, um, they want you to do Trump on this little trailer. So we filmed about a five-minute thing, and it was Jeff Westbrook, who was the showrunner on The Simpsons and Futurama, was basically running it. Wow. Like, this is so cool. I really hope it gets made. And, then, and you'll know this. In this line of work, you don't get, like, the big call... Where it's like the agent going, hey, kid, 
I want you to do Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. We're bringing back spitting image, kid. I want your face on the, you know. It's just like incrementally they go, oh, I think it might get made. And uh, right, yeah. And we, yeah, we, we think you might be doing Boris. And then, you know, it, the, the information just sort of drips to you incrementally. Mm. And then you kind of end up going, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm doing spitting image. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you, it's not like a definite thing. And then you're like, oh, I'm doing, so I'm doing Boris, Keir Starmer and Donald Trump. And I'm one of the writers on it as well. And all that kind of, they're like, oh, they might want you to write on it. Can you do like a Zoom thing? And then you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just more dates get added to your diary. And then you just sort of, you realise, oh, I'm working. You know, it's such a weird, I think maybe as well. And I don't know if you're the same. Until stuff actually happens, it's not happening. Do you know what I mean? Until oh. you are there. <laughs> until actually it's broadcast. Until it's finished, yeah. Until it's oh finished God. and it's on, you're like, well, this might not be happening. You know, you might be there on set dressed as a Victorian <laughs> footballer or whatever, you know, with a full beard going, yeah, I'm not sure this is... <laughs> but you're there, the, the camera's ready. You're like, yeah, but, yeah, but still, until, until someone says they've yeah. seen it, then... Shit happens. And this is the year that all the shit happens. So you're yeah. like, you, you just never know. So, yeah, it was only recently I started telling people, really. I mean, that must be a lot of fun. It's insanely especially, fun. Especially for someone like you. I mean, this <laughs> is this is your ballpark. It's the most fun I've ever had at work because you're not only making topical comedy for, like, a flagship show, it's a really silly show to work on. Like, they're fucking puppets of world <laughs> leaders and, like, they've made them look stupid. You're like, this is... So, I'm so glad this show exists. Like, it's bonkers that the Boris puppet, his face, Trump's face... It's like, this is... So then you're kind of writing for puppets of people. So the joke's about real people, but you're writing them for the puppet of the person. In a weird way, the puppet then starts having its own kind of weird personality and ticks and things. Yeah. So it's kind of like part fact, part fiction. And then you can do anything with these things. You know, you can blast them into space or have them living in a volcano or whatever the fuck it is. It's mad. And you're just like, wow. You know, you're working on a great satirical show and you've got this freedom and they can punch each other and slap each other around the head and, and that's part of the fun of it it's a punch and judy show but when spitting image first came round all those years ago i mean not only was it controversial week in week out but it was groundbreaking stuff yeah now are you obviously i don't know what it was like the first time around but i can only imagine that with the writing you're going down to the wire to get things, is that right, as, as, you know, on point as possible and up to date with what's going on with the news? Because as we know, everything's changing from one hour to the next. Yeah, I mean, particularly with Trump's health. So the episode one was on the day after he, I think it was the day after he went to hospital or the day that he uh, sort of announced he had COVID. So you're like, holy shit, Trump's got COVID. And we're putting out a show tomorrow that has him in it as a puppet. So we had to just like quickly knock up things. And I was, I've recorded all my bits from this spare room that I'm talking to you now. So there was a sketch where we had him tweeting from bed. And literally, I had to record myself coughing as Trump. So I can't just go, <coughs> I have to put on like a, <coughs> I have to sound like he's coughing, <coughs> Melania. <coughs> and I'm doing like these <coughs> sort of noises. <laughs> just in like my underpants. It was like first thing in the morning, they're like, Plug your mic into your laptop. He's in hospitals. I'm just like, first thing, I haven't even like woken up yet. And that's so much fun of it. But yes, it's right to the wire. And uh, yeah, anything can happen and we have to try and cover it every week. 
And when is that has that started? Has that been broadcast yet? Yes, yeah, so it's on BritBox, which on is Britbox. A, a streaming service made by ITV and the BBC, and a, it's a ten-week run. Um, there's a new episode every Saturday, and it's just been announced we've got a second series next year as well. So. Oh, congratulations, mate. This is brilliant. Well, on behalf of people far more talented than me, thank you very much. <laughs> would you, just to end things, would you do me the honour of selecting a little passage from your book and giving us all a little listen, please? I'd love that. Okay. Well, I chose... You know what? I thought Talking about the bit that I thought people would like... Mm. Um, it's one of my favourite chapters is Tricks of the Trade. So the first part of the book is kind of memoir, as you would imagine, growing up and why I got into politics. There's yeah. then a chapter I really enjoyed writing, which are just, I don't know how many lessons there are. 16 or 17 lessons that I just learned in politics that are just like rules. So I'll read, I'll read a couple of these, shall I? Yes, please. I don't want to take too much of your time up. Um, so here we go. Chapter six, Tricks of the Trade. I'm occasionally asked, what's the most important thing you've learned in politics? That's easy. Work in an office with good lunch options. Apart from that, here are some other lessons I learned, many through personal failure. Lesson number one, never repeat the charge. An old boss of mine used to say, if candidate A puts out a leaflet saying that candidate B is a paedophile, the last thing candidate B should do is put out a leaflet saying, I'm not a paedophile. This is a great rule. Hopefully, you'll never be accused of being a paedophile, unless you are a paedophile, in which case, I hope you're not just accused but apprehended. For now, let's work on the assumption that you're not a paedophile. See, it's highbrow stuff, right? (laughs) I frequently had to calm down MPs who'd been wound up by an opponent's leaflet, usually the Lib Dems. They'd ring me up going mad. It's full of lies. I need to put out a leaflet to correct the record. Of course, if I was the candidate being insulted, I'd probably feel the same way but it's the worst thing you can do. All you're doing is spreading the story. People won't remember where they heard it or the details, so you're just creating more noise about whatever the allegation is. If they're calling you a dogger and then you're going door-to-door talking about how you're not a dogger, the only conversation you're having with people is about whether you're a dogger or not. And who goes into politics to do that? Don't answer that. Stick to your key messages, whether they're about the economy, the NHS or dog dirt, and keep pumping out materials that talk about that. Do not get involved in a tit-for-tat row where you're circulating rebuttal leaflets saying that my my opponent has lied about me. It devalues you. As my old boss would say to other politicians, don't get involved in a pissing contest. A colleague of mine loved the story about Lyndon B. Johnson wanting to accuse an opponent of having sex with pigs. An advisor cautioned against it, telling Johnson that we can't get away with calling him a pig fucker. Johnson replied, I don't care. I want to hear him deny it. A slightly different version of this occurs in media interviews. Never repeat the charge in the question during your answer. If it's put to you that, quote, you've created a nation of bedwetters, do not let those words come out of your mouth. Think about how it sounds if you start your answer by saying, we haven't created a nation of bedwetters. It sounds like you're accepting the premise of the question. You're helping reinforce an idea that because of your policies, people around Britain are now pissing the bed. Plus, When the interview is clipped for future use, the interviewer's question will be left out. It sounds like a framing that you chose, suggesting you're thinking about the issue in those terms. Of course, not all questions are so obviously loaded, so you have to be careful. The ploy might be more subtle, the accusation something gentle like, why have you failed to miss your waiting time target? Don't repeat the F word. Take a moment to reset and say what you're prepared to say. 
Under our party, the NHS sees more patients, carries out more operations and saves more lives than at any point in our history. But only if it's true. Although that bit seems to be optional these days. Matt Ford, I think this needs to be sent to many politicians to read. (laughs) Um, Mate, it sounds amazing. And it's out now, isn't it, in all good bookshops? It is. All good websites, Waterstones, Amazon, etc. And support your independent booksellers, I would say. Yes, more importantly, yeah, actually, it's on Amazon, but but sod those guys. Yes. Go to your independent bookshop. Yeah, um, because hopefully, and if not, uh, you can usually just order books in, can't you? Yeah, so, of course. Oh, what well, politically homeless. Personally speaking, uh, as your friend, I am incredibly proud of you, and I think, oh, mate, it's, thank uh, you. Uh, honestly, I think it's an incredible achievement. And it's even you reading it there. Yes, I was hearing your voice, but it sounds exactly like like <laughs> you <laughs> off the page. So I, you know, I can't wait to read it, mate. I mean oh, it. mate, thank you. It means a great deal coming from you. It really does. Thank you. Well, I'm really pleased that you took your time off your exercise bike to come and talk to me. My gout-ridden bike. Your gout-ridden bike. <laughs> um, and look, all the best with it, and please Cheers, keep mate. in touch, and I will speak to you soon. See you soon. All right, take care, man. Thanks. Thank and another episode is done. Ah, I really hope you enjoyed it. I can't wait. I, genuinely, I can't wait to read Matt's book. And if you're going to go and get it, which I think you should, it's called Politically Homeless by Matt Ford. It's out today. Yes, you could go to some of uh, the big bookshops that are on your high street, or you could just open your computer and go onto a very well-known site and probably get it the next day. But why not in these times go and support your independence? Go to that independent bookshop And you know what? If they don't have it in, which I'm sure they will, but if they don't, they'll get it for you and it'll be here the next day and you're helping an independent business out. Hmm? Yeah, I think so. Right. Well, thank you so much for downloading and joining us and spreading the word and all the messages that you send us. You know where we are. We're on all the social medias, at Two Shot Pod. Drop us a message. Let us know everything's going okay, and if you like the episodes. Um, or, do you know what? We've been having some lovely emails. You know, I, I, you know I don't read the majority of them out, but I just want to say the ones that we've had this week have been lovely, and I can't thank you enough, and it, it really means a lot to myself and Griff that you're enjoying the podcast and, you know, in some cases helping you through, you know, dark days and difficult times. But let's stick together and let's keep the conversation going and that is what we intend to do, you know. So look, until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care of yourself. I'll see you next week. Cheers. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers.
ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. I'm Teresa Caputo, and I am dying to tell you about my new podcast, Hey Spirit. Most of you might know me as the Long Island Medium. Why do people even call me that? Well, I talk to the dead. Oh, he is funny as sh- He literally just said, Teresa, he's a better husband because of me. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Through this podcast, I'm going to connect guests with the souls of their departed loved ones and give them the peace that they've been searching for. I got to catch up with my friend, Kim Kardashian West. Every brunch, we have this Armenian Vichy that totally brings our dad into the mix. Today, I had the pleasure of sharing my gift with Nathan Lane. I am so super excited for you guys to hear and be a part of Hey Spirit. Please subscribe wherever you listen. ACAST, A-cast, A-cast, A-cast recommends. recommends.